The Fire Lance was a 10th century Chinese weapon that looked like a normal spear, but which contained, at its business end, the end with the spearhead, a separate piece of bamboo that was filled with gunpowder. That gunpowder was connected to a slow-burning wick, which, when it reached the gunpowder-filled bamboo tube, would shoot out flames in the direction that it was pointed. It's a fair assumption that this sort of effect would have been terrifying to 10th century people, soldiers or not, who were on the receiving end of that burst of explosive flames. But we need not assume there is recorded evidence of these weapons being used in battle, first in the year 950, then again in 1044. They were eventually used on scale, named as having been used in big battles rather than smaller fights in 1132, and they were later mounted on carts, which allowed them to be used several at a time and to be more mobile so as to be more capable of defending siege equipment when necessary. They also had bits of broken porcelain and small iron pellets added to the gunpowder mix, which allowed them to wound enemy soldiers rather than merely startling and burning them, and their bamboo tubes were eventually swapped out with a type of sturdy reusable paper tube, which allowed fire lancers to replace spent barrels mid-fight in favor of new unspent ones. From there, the saltpeter ratio saltpeter being a vital component of old-school gunpowder, in the gunpowder that they were using was eventually adjusted to increase its overall explosiveness and the amount of damage it could cause. To survive this new and improved combustibility, the barrels were out of necessity replaced with metal barrels, and eventually the shrapnel that they contained was replaced with larger pellets, which then became, with time, just one large pellet, which occluded meaning blocked, the muzzle hole, which allowed all that gunpowder, which was formerly focused on causing a big explosion with fire and light, to instead propel that single pellet really, really fast. Now you can probably see where this is going. The fire lance eventually evolved to the point where the lance part, the spear, wasn't necessary, and the metal barrel, with its explosive powder and big metal pellet, was reduced to a smaller, handheld device called an eruptor, which in turn evolved into the more refined hand cannon weapon, which became popular in China around the same time that the original fire lance was spreading around what we now call the Middle East, and was from there slowly being adopted by mounted knights in Europe. That earlier version of the fire lance cart that I mentioned, which was used to defend siege equipment, was also refined over the years, getting bigger and more powerful, allowing operators to spray crowds of soldiers with pellets or to propel giant rocks and other projectiles at city walls. By the early 14th century, soldiers around the old world from Asia to the westernmost parts of Europe were using gunpowder weapons to kill each other. And by the end of the 14th century, cultures to the east of China had also acquired that knowledge of gunpowder and how it might be used with similar results. Although those bigger pseudo-vehicular versions of this technology 
could be loosely defined as cannons. The hand cannon didn't officially evolve into a gun rather than a mere firearm until the matchlock arquebus, a rifle-shaped hand cannon or long gun, was developed in Europe in the 15th century. This device evolved over the course of decades to become the most dominant and reliable firearm in the world for over a century. A matchlock gun was a weapon that allowed its bearer to pull a little lever, called a serpentine lever, to lower a smoldering match into prepacked gunpowder within the barrel of the weapon. Before this innovation, the soldier using the weapon would have had to light and touch a match or some other starter to a hole alongside the barrel of their weapon, which was dangerous and required a good amount of concentration to do it right, much less aim while doing it. This lever eventually evolved into a gun trigger, but at the time was something more like a strand of leather or small bit of rope which would be pulled to activate. Regardless of its shape, though, this invention proved to be so impactful on the effectiveness of these weapons that it overshadowed most similar designs and came to define the evolutionary track ancestral gun technologies would take, iterating into the musket and then all the descendants of the musket that are much more familiar to us in modern times. But the fact that these mechanisms from hundreds of years ago, over 700 in the earliest iterations, are still used in a more sophisticated form today says something about how influential they were on their industry, their intended use, that of killing things from a distance, at first for war, later for hunting, and eventually for, ostensibly at least, self-defense. What I want to talk about today is guns, their cultural place in the United States, and why they have played such a prominent role in our political and cultural system in recent years. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled Fight If You Must, Students Take a Frontline Role in School Shootings. That first part of this headline refers to advice that students are getting in some schools here in the United States when they go through live shooter drills. Run, hide, fight is the more complete version of this concept. Actually, run if you can, hide if you need to, and fight if you must is the most complete version. This type of advice can lead to very mixed feelings, I think, regardless of who you're giving it to. After all, it's kind of assumed that, in most wealthy nations at least, it's kind of law enforcement's job to handle these sorts of things, people who wish to do you violent harm. And as a consequence, having to be prepared, to be psychologically prepared and mentally aware of whether or not someone might have a gun, to be trained in some way, even if just a little bit, in case someone starts shooting in a public place, it's kind of messed up. And it can feel a little bit like a militarization of that space. What used to be a Starbucks begins to feel a little like a war zone. And you're looking for where you'll hide, where you'll run, where you can ambush the shooter if something were to happen. What used to be a movie theater becomes a collection of escape routes and dead ends. It's an uncomfortable way of thinking about the world if you begin to see things in that way. And kids are being trained to do just that. 
with the public space that they must go to every single weekday. On the other hand, it could be argued that this type of training, of making sure most people are at least a little bit prepared for this sort of event, is a method of ruggedizing the public, of making sure that it's resilient enough to survive an attack, whatever shape that attack might take. Similar to the fundamental survival and wartime teachings, folks are often given in the midst of total war. During the Blitz in England in World War II, or the duck and cover drills folks in most countries have performed in many wars since, in many countries around the world, preparing themselves to survive an airstrike or missile attack just in case. That sense of wrongness may increase for some people, though, when they recognize that the people in question, the public being ruggedized, being made more defensible, are schoolchildren. These are kids who are being trained to defend themselves, or at the very least to be less easy targets when it comes to being targeted by a lone gunman, the most likely form of mass shooting these students face. It could be argued that this shouldn't be happening, and therefore we shouldn't risk scarring our kids. And there's evidence already that these sorts of drills keep kids up at night, worry them to the point of anxiety about what might happen. And that instead we should be bringing in more security guards, handling these problem children and adults who become mass murderers at their source, rather than their destination. Or perhaps we should arm teachers and principals and anyone else who can pull a trigger, counter bad guys with guns with good guys with guns. It could also be argued that, while yes, something needs to be done about this to ensure it happens less, in the meantime, the reality is that it is happening. And we can either pretend that it's not and do nothing, or acknowledge that it is a terrible reality and deal with that reality. Similar to how women should not have to worry about where they walk at night any more than anyone else, but that often, in practice, they do. You could say it's not fair to put that additional responsibility and fear on someone because of their gender and you would be right, but that way of thinking does not necessarily preclude carrying mace or walking with a group when in doubt. One more uncomfortable aspect of this uncomfortable reality, though, is that it's not really much of a problem for much of the world. It's mostly just here in the United States. With the exception of war-torn nations or places without any real rule of law or expectation of fair treatment from law enforcement, there aren't really countries that have the gun problem the United States has. And although radicalism of many flavors are evidence all over the place at the moment, for a variety of reasons, ranging from governmental to internet-driven catalysts. In most places, we see non-firearm weapons being utilized, which, although still horrible and often quite devastating, almost always have a lower body count than when a motivated person with a firearm or two walks into a crowded area and starts firing. I know a lot of people who own guns, many of them very responsible, law-abiding, ultra-friendly people who have their guns and ammo in separate bank vault-like secured cabinets who generally live in places where bears attacking their dogs is a real concern. They're actually exactly the sort of people you would hope would be armed if you were being attacked because they would almost certainly know how to handle their weapons and would almost certainly come to your rescue. That said, I also tend to think to establish my bias up front here, that we could do with far greater regulation here in the United States when it comes to guns, and that most people should not be able to own one, much less the arsenals that gun enthusiasts often acquire. I also tend to think that anything more than a hunting rifle or pistol is difficult to justify outside a battlefield, 
And generally, I feel way more comfortable when I'm living in countries where there are no guns in the hands of civilians, with very few exceptions. I also understand that this is a very highly politicized topic, and one that many people have borderline religious feelings about, one way or another. So what I'd like to do here is walk through the history of guns in the United States and outline some of the reasons, theoretical and data-driven, that mass shootings happen with such frequency here when compared to essentially every other country on the planet at any point in history. In December of 1791, the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the United States Constitution, was ratified. The Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights says, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed, end quote. This sentence has been used by gun rights supporters throughout modern U.S. history, but regulations on these ostensible rights were still passed throughout the 20th century, beginning with the National Firearms Act in 1934 which was passed as a means of curtailing gang-related violence and crime as a part of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal for Crime. The NFA attempted to stifle gun crimes in the United States by taxing the manufacturing, selling, and transporting of certain types of gun, including short-barreled shotguns and rifles, machine guns, and mufflers and silencers, which reduced the sound made by a fired gun. The NFA was modified several times after being passed, however, which reduced its level of enforcement and impact. A few years later, in 1938, the Federal Firearms Act came into effect, and it required gun manufacturers, importers, and dealers to get a license if they wanted to sell guns. It also said that convicted felons could not own firearms, and mandated that those who sell guns keep a record of who they sold weapons to. In 1939, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on a case called the United States v. Miller, which was a test of the recently passed 1934 NFA, which brought forth the question of whether it was okay to sell a sawed-off shotgun between states. The court ruled that there was no evidence that a sawed-off shotgun, quote, has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, end quote, and therefore, Quote, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. End quote. In 1968, after John F. Kennedy, his brother Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King Jr. were all assassinated by gunmen, President Johnson supported and eventually signed the Gun Control Act of 1968, which replaced the FFA, updated the NFA, and added the term destructive devices to that act so that it applied to bombs, mines, grenades, and things of that nature, rather than just guns. It also expanded upon the definition of what machine gun meant, to include similar weapons to what was initially regulated by those earlier acts. Broadly, the GCA banned the import of guns that did not have any, quote, sporting purpose, end quote. So guns that clearly were not meant for hunting or Olympic-style accuracy shooting and it introduced a 21 or older age restriction on owning guns, kept felons and the mentally ill from owning guns, required that all guns have a serial number so they could be tracked, and overall made the industry a little more transparent in how it operated. 
there was a little bit of pushback against some of these regulations in 1986, when the Firearm Owners Protection Act was passed by Congress, prohibiting the government from keeping a national registry of gun dealer records, limiting ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, from regular abusive inspections unless there were multiple dealer infractions, and allowing gun dealers to sell weapons at gun shows, a policy that allowed them to deal more casually in certain environments while also loosening regulations on the sale and transfer of ammunition for the guns that they sold. That pushback was fairly short-lived, however. In 1993, the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, named after a White House press secretary who was permanently disabled from a gunshot wound he acquired while standing next to former president Ronald Reagan when an attempt was made on Reagan's life, required that background checks be made on would-be gun purchasers before they could buy from a licensed dealer, manufacturer, or importer. It also led to the creation of the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, or NICS, which is maintained by the FBI. The following year, in 1994, then-President Bill Clinton signed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which contained what is typically referred to as the Assault Weapons Ban, but which is formally called the Public Safety and Recreational Firearms Use Protection Act, and this chunk of text temporarily prohibited the manufacturer, transfer, or possession of a semi-automatic assault weapon unless it was lawfully possessed under federal law on the date the act was passed into law, which meant in practice that for a decade it was illegal to make or buy or transfer an assault rifle, including a wide range of military-style and so-called copycat weapons like the AR-15 Tech 9, Mac 10, and other now famous names from this corner of the gun industry in the United States. So if you had one already, it was legally acquired and you didn't try to sell or give it away, you were good. But no new ones would be made or sold within the United States, not legally at least. A year before that portion of that act was set to expire in 2003, the TIART Amendment disallowed the ATF from publicly releasing data that showed where criminals purchased their guns, the argument being that only cops and the FBI and other law enforcement agencies needed that kind of information. This amendment was pitched as a way of protecting private businesses from unfair connections between their products and crimes that were committed with those products, but critics of it have said that it mostly just shields them from lawsuits that might be brought by families of victims and it prevents academic study of the firearm industry. It also, those critics say, conceals the relationship between the official public-facing tax-paying firearm industry and the black market for such weapons, which is considered to be a more porous thing than the laws and regulations we have in place might imply. The TIART Amendment was the first of many pro-gun owner and pro-gun seller changes that would be implemented over the course of the next decade, which was in contrast to what came before, a period that was, for most of the 20th century, more regulatory in nature, even to the point of banning certain weapons within the United States for any purpose at all. In 2005, then-President George W. Bush signed the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, which prevented gun manufacturers from being named as defendants in federal or state civil suits by victims or the family of victims of crimes that involved guns made by these companies. 
This act also dismissed all pending cases of that sort. So the many cases that were in the process of being sorted out, which had gun manufacturers listed as defendants, were tossed out without being heard by the court. In 2008, the District of Columbia v. Heller challenged and changed the precedent set by the Miller case back in 1939. That was the one where the court said that it was not clear that a well-regulated militia needed to have sawed-off shotguns, and thus, that type of weapon wasn't protected under the Second Amendment. This case focused on a law in Washington, D.C., which banned handguns in the district, and Heller, the side bringing the case, won. The courts ruled that the handgun ban was unconstitutional because the individual right to possess a firearm was unconnected with that individual's service in a militia. This ruling did not directly impact other gun control provisions on the books at the time, but it did set the stage for a flurry of other court cases, which little by little whittled away at the previously installed bans, regulations, and taxes that had been applied to this industry and to the ownership rights of guns over the course of the next decade. That flurry of recent gun-related deregulatory efforts makes a lot more sense with a little additional context and no discussion about guns in the United States is complete without mentioning a group called the National Rifle Association of America, often referred to as the NRA. The NRA was founded in 1871 as a sports club focused on marksmanship, on gun-related hobbies and sports, but it was based on the British National Rifle Association, and its establishment was proposed by Americans living in the UK. It was founded and promoted not just because gun sports were a big deal in some American subcultures, but also because the American Civil War had just begun the year before, and Union soldiers were pretty terrible shots. The data is tricky to assess for legitimacy here, but Union records, the Union being the North, indicated that for every 1,000 shots fired by Union soldiers, only one hit was scored on a Confederate soldier which is pretty bad. And considering that hunting and overall gunmanship was more of a thing down south, where there were fewer cities and more farms and forests, that wasn't a good sign for the more urban northerners. So a firing range was opened up for public use. Generals aggregated training tactics and advice from programs in Canada, the UK, and Germany, and a railway station was installed nearby to ensure young men who wanted to drill with their local militia or for the Union military were able to more easily reach the training grounds to work on their shot and their military formations. The NRA itself got famous nationally after the National Irish Rifle Team won a competition in the UK and then issued a formal challenge to the US team to face them at their chosen sport. American rifle companies got involved and the US government gave their favor and the US team won. The publicity for the event and subsequent victory was a big deal for a country in need of good news, and the NRA rode that wave, spreading their rifle clubs across the nation, state by state. Local competitions were organized after that initial wave of popularity for the NRA, and a sort of cultural conveyor belt brought folks with gun skills from the smallest U.S. towns into the national military, due to the relationship that was developing between these gun clubs and the nation's National Guard and Army services both of which required a lot of people who knew how to use guns. The NRA moved their headquarters to Washington, D.C. in the year 1910 to be in closer contact with their government allies, and they began to manufacture rifles and pistols for their members in 1910 and 1912, respectively. 
Due to this tight-knit relationship with the government, the United States Department of War produced and distributed free ammunition and free targets to civilian rifle clubs with at least 10 members throughout the country until 1927. In 1934, when the first bits of gun legislation started to roll out, the president of the NRA, Carl Frederick, backed the NFA, saying, quote, I have never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons, end quote, before going on to say, quote, I do not believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under licenses, end quote. The NRA also backed the Federal Firearms Act, which was passed four years later, and then supported the Gun Control Act, which came about in 1968, though they opposed the National Firearms Registry component of that act. And that opposition eventually led to a change in the organization, leading the NRA to create a political action committee, today often called a PAC, to fundraise for the 1976 presidential elections. This is when the NRA became less of a government-supported pre-military sporting club and became more of a lobbying group, wielding a good degree of monetary and political power. This shift culminated in an NRA convention that took place in 1977, which did not go as planned. Existing leadership wanted to move their headquarters to New Mexico and build a gun sports recreational facility in Colorado, and showed up to the convention intending to talk about that. But Second Amendment activists within the organization held a bit of a coup, blaming the existing NRA leadership for allowing gun control legislation to pass, and wanting to double down on their accumulation and wielding of political influence to make sure politicians who get elected had gun owners' rights in the forefront of their minds in the future. Up until this point, the NRA had been stringently nonpartisan not supporting one political party or the other with any regularity, mostly focusing on whomever had the right policies for their particular issue. In the 70s, though, the NRA became increasingly aligned with the Republican Party, often throwing their weight behind Republican nominees regardless of the gun politics on either side, because they tended to find more overall cultural alignment on that side of the aisle. That uprising at the convention in 1977 has since become known as the Cincinnati Revolution because of the dramatic sea change it represented for the group. In 1991, the leadership coup was completed when the activists finally fully booted the older, sporting-centric committee from the NRA board and filled the organization's higher-up ranks with their own people. The NRA did not manage to block President Clinton's 1994 assault weapon ban, much to their dismay, but they did keep it from being re-upped in 2004, when that ban was up for reappraisal, through canny use of lobbying dollars and voting block tactics. Although the NRA has technically lobbied on behalf of their members since 1872, when they petitioned the New York State Legislature to set up that firing range that they wanted to install so locals could practice their gun accuracy, the organization took on an entirely different tone from the mid-70s onward, becoming an early version of what it is seen as today, the defender of traditional American values, very much including being armed and ready to fight, to defend oneself, one's family, one's property, to some and to others as a somewhat backwards, often hateful, misogynistic, and racist organization that taps into portions of the population's fears and anxieties in order to sell more guns to more people. There have been recent rumblings of change within the NRA. In the last few weeks, as of the day I'm recording this, actually, 
I'm not going to get deep into the weeds about that here, in part because it's still an emerging story, and whatever I say will likely be outdated by the time this episode goes live, but also because it's not entirely clear what's happening, who's trying to achieve which ends, and which portions of the public-facing storylines are propaganda, and which portions are fact. The quick overview is that there seems to be a power struggle happening within the group, within the higher ranks in particular, with the organization suing their public relations firm, which is generally considered to be the source of the NRA's success in aggressively pushing gun rights regulation over the past two decades. The lawsuit alleges that the PR firm has been veering away from gun rights-related issues on the organization's NRA TV online video channel, that the company has been paying NRA president Oliver North $1 million each year, which looks a lot like a conflict of interest to some, and that the company hasn't been transparent in their invoices, which totaled $40 million in 2017. So basically, that they were perhaps overbilling the NRA for their PR work, and maybe paying off the NRA president to ensure they could keep overbilling in that way. There were also accusations of blackmail and extortion between leaders of the organization, and there's word that there may be a committee set up to internally investigate some of what's been happening between these organization leaders. But at the moment, again, it is difficult to say what is the truth and what is posturing. So I'll just say that things seem to be a little bit complicated within the NRA right now, and that can mean a lot of things, but doesn't seem to mean much on the practical level as of the day I'm recording this. Currently, in the United States, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 gun laws on the books. This is inclusive of the many, often very specific, gun laws that exist state by state. And this is the reason that although there are some major overarching federal gun laws in place that set the broad terms of engagement when it comes to purchasing, owning, and transferring guns, there are also a lot of local variations. There are 11 major gun laws in effect nationally which came about over the course of the 20th century, and which have been adjusted over the years with amendments and more recent laws, but which broadly outline the space in which these state laws operate. They include the National Firearms Act of 1934, the Federal Firearms Act of 1938, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, the Gun Control Act of 1968, the Firearm Owners Protection Act of 1986, the Undetectable Firearms Act of 1988, the Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990, the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act of 1993, the Federal Assault Weapons Ban of 1994 to 2004, the Law Enforcement Officers Safety Act of 2004, and the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act of 2003. Some of these, like the assault weapons ban, are no longer in effect, either entirely or partially, but still technically exist in such a state that they would be easier to re-implement, potentially, than some new untried legislation in the future. In aggregate, these laws add up to a situation in which it is illegal for certain people, including fugitives, felons, and the broadly defined mentally ill, to purchase a firearm. The right to bear arms for everyone else is broadly protected, and that right is parroted in 44 states' local constitutions, alongside the federal one. It's also generally true that a person can keep and bear arms within their own home for self-defense, even if local governments have laws on the books that regulate public use, purchase, and such outside of one's home. Some guns can be purchased at age 18, others require owners to be 21, some guns are regulated, 
either made illegal, like automatic weapons produced after 1986, and others are just difficult to get because of all the legal red tape involved in acquiring them, in some states at least. The sale of guns is regulated, and those selling guns must pass the same criteria as gun owners, and must also be licensed, and they must conduct background checks on buyers at the time of sale. That said, background check methods vary, and there are loopholes that allow for the sale of guns on a sort of gray market, where it's technically legal because they make use of gun shows rather than permanent businesses, which helps them dodge certain regulations. This includes age restrictions on gun ownership, but also allows them to sell guns without doing a background check. And there's also a thriving black market that accounts for what's thought to be a fairly substantial portion of all gun sales and transfers in the United States. Some states, about a dozen of them, require permits before you can purchase a handgun, and only a few require the same for the purchase of rifles and shotguns. Most states do require a permit to carry a handgun, though very few have the same for carrying rifles and shotguns in public. So that's a fairly big picture assessment of what's happening in the United States right now when it comes to guns. But it's nowhere near a complete picture, in part because guns are used with such great frequency to commit crimes, including murder here in the United States. And it's not something that simply having this kind of product available can account for, ostensibly at least. One perspective on this, which I personally find to be fairly compelling, is that the existence of easy-to-acquire guns within a society is not a problem creator, it's a problem amplifier. 22,000 Americans die each year by committing suicide with a gun. Nearly two-thirds of all gun deaths in the United States are suicides, people shooting themselves on purpose. And that's a number that has increased by 19% over the past decade or so overall and by 61% within the child and teenager demographics over that same period. Importantly, guns are only used in 6% of suicide attempts, but half of all successful suicides where the person attempting it manages to kill themselves are caused by guns. 85% of all attempts with a gun are successful, compared to less than 5% attempted via other methods. These metrics are often pointed at as evidence that a reduction in guns would also reduce the number of successful suicides. Survivors of suicide attempts have reported consistently that the buildup from initial deliberation, feeling like they want to die, want to kill themselves, to their attempt to do so, was about 10 minutes. Prolonging the duration between thought and successful attempt then gives people the time to think it through before they act, and that could substantially reduce the number of successful suicides each year, allowing more people who might otherwise kill themselves the opportunity to get help. Which, by the way, is something that you can easily do if you're thinking about suicide. SuicidePreventionLifeline.org has a great reputation and has all kinds of resources available for folks who suffer from depression or who are just having a bad day or week or year. And you can call 1-800-273-8255 to talk to someone 24 hours a day in the United States. And there are local versions of this all around the world. So definitely check out that kind of resource if you are feeling down and thinking about hurting yourself for whatever reason. That in mind, suicide is one example of an already bad situation that would seem to be amplified by the presence of a gun. 
Having this type of weapon handy reduces the amount of time it takes someone who is in that mental state to make an attempt on their own life, and a gun makes it more likely that their attempt will be a successful one. It's been posited that domestic violence, muggings and burglaries, public fights between strangers, and even mass shootings at schools or elsewhere are similar sorts of issues in this regard. It's not that people are becoming more violent because of guns or that guns change people in some fundamental way. It's that someone who was already thinking about how to get revenge on their school now has an amplifying technology available to them if they choose to use it. It's not that there are more robberies. It's that more of them involve weapons that can very quickly cause such interactions to become deadly. It's not that there's more domestic violence taking place. It's that these instances of domestic violence escalate faster when a gun is present and makes that violence more likely to result in serious injury or death. But the mass shootings in particular seem to get at the heart of this issue, as they represent a very visible, very widely reported, terrifying version of what happens in all these other instances. We've seen other mass killings, public attacks around the world that have taken the shape of people driving vans into crowds of people in Canada and Europe, knife attacks in the UK and China, bombings in Pakistan and Iraq. In the United States, though, where we have more guns in civilian hands than any place else on the planet, we also have a hell of a lot more gun deaths than anywhere else as well. Compared to 22 other wealthy nations, we have half the population of those other nations combined. But 82% of all the gun deaths, 90% of women killed with guns, 91% of children under 14 killed with guns, and 92% of young people between the ages of 15 and 24 killed with guns. It's important to note that violence is not limited to one group or another. It's something that men and women do, Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and secular people do. All colors and creeds and political alignments and everything else do and have done around the world and in the U.S. throughout time. It's a human thing, which is pretty messed up but true. Here in the U.S., though, because guns offer a higher return to lower risk ratio in terms of the user being more likely to survive and less likely to get caught when compared to, for instance, handling a bomb or driving a vehicle into a crowd of people, they are also used far more frequently than other options. And although the vast majority of non-suicide U.S. gun deaths are one-on-one killings, the result of gang violence or botched robberies, mostly in poorer areas around the country, the most psychologically relevant deaths, the ones that result from mass shootings at schools and movie theaters and other public places, these are primarily committed by one group, white men. Now, important to understand here is the fact that these mass shooting numbers do not indicate that white males are demographically overrepresented when it comes to mass shootings in the United States. The data we have available on this sort of thing shows that about 70% of mass shooters are white, while people who identify as Caucasian make up 73.9% of the country, where they did in 2012 when most of the data on this topic was initially collected. What this means is that while it is mostly white people committing mass shootings in the United States, we are seeing about the same number of people from different groups committing shootings based on census data. So we're not seeing more white people becoming gun-related mass murderers than any other group. We're seeing more white people becoming mass murderers in proportion to their population of the country. Setting aside the complex topics of racial identity and census data for a moment, this argument supports the aforementioned proposition that guns are probably more often amplifiers rather than violence inducers. That said, the data do indicate that men 
are far more likely to commit mass shootings than women. Since 1982, all but two mass shootings out of the 96 tallied when this research was done were committed by men. Notably, 89% of murder-suicides are also committed by men, and often include an unwilling female partner or ex-partner. 86% of domestic violence incidents overall are perpetrated by men, and more than half of what we designate as mass shootings actually seem to be domestic violence incidents, where a man sets out to kill his girlfriend or ex-girlfriend or mother or grandmother and ends up killing other people as part of that larger act of violence. One of the most predictive risk factors of committing serious violence is being male. And one more potential bit of data here that supports the gun as amplifier theory. Men own guns at triple the rate of women. 62% of men in the United States own a gun compared to 22% of women. So what do we do with all this information and with these theories? One thought is that we can recognize the potentially harmful incentives that exist within the current U.S. political and economic system and allow that knowledge to inform this particular debate. There's a good chance this perspective is partially the consequence of my aforementioned bias on this subject, so take this with a grain of salt. But it does seem that a lot of the debate around and regulation of guns in the United States is the consequence of political parties and individual politicians wanting to appease the NRA and their members, who often vote as a de facto bloc to ensure that they keep those votes and don't miss out on their super PAC money and lobbying benefits. Now, the flip side is that Democrats very often position themselves on the polar opposite side of these debates, leaving us with a massive chasm in between the two main political parties, with politics and ideas heavily slanted toward the gun industry and their ability to make as much money as possible on one side, and the desire to position the gun lobby and Republican Party as bogeyman, as murderers, on the other, which leaves us little room for discussion, little room for gray area thinking and rational conversation in the middle. Also worth considering is that as a result of NRA lobbying efforts, we actually have very little data about the gun industry guns and violent crime, and even things like gun-related suicides. Much of the data we do have has been collected independently, which doesn't make it less legitimate, but it does mean that we're almost certainly missing portions of the bigger picture, making decisions based on things that we cannot see, and questions we don't know we should be asking. Having more of this type of data could help inform future discussions and policy, making our decisions more likely to be based on reality rather than politically distorted perception. It's also worth considering what other factors we might address alongside guns if they are indeed acting as amplifiers. After all, knife violence isn't a great thing to have within a society either, and countries without guns often have a great deal more of that. So perhaps in addition to looking at the weapons used, we should be addressing some of the influences that seem to be turning young men in particular toward violent acts and figuring out what cultural distortions, rather than just weapon-related distortions, might be adjusted or corrected so that there's less violence overall rather than less gun violence alone. This is a very broad-based thing to consider, of course, as we're living in a time of great transition in terms of technology, politics, culture, and personal identity, and countless other factors, many of which are super confusing and uncomfortable for many people for many reasons. But lacking such information, lacking the proper data and understanding, 
it's unlikely that we'll just stumble upon a solution that works, that reduces these sad numbers we're accumulating as a species. So it seems prudent to address the issue holistically, seeing it as part of an interconnected whole, rather than as an isolated thing that's unattached to other similar issues. We can reassess our relationship with guns while also figuring out why so many people are committing violent acts around the world with whatever weapons they happen to have at hand. We can suss out what's causing so many people to be violent with their partners, violent with themselves, and violent in public with strangers, in escalating spirals that can involve drinks, drugs, legal and otherwise, employment, perceived cultural irrelevance, the integration of cultures and ideas, globalized thinkings and awareness, and countless other factors, many of which are broadly positive with potential negative implications, but some of which are actually mostly negative, and therefore perhaps easier to address in the short term. We may actually have a bit more info on the gun front, at least, sometime in the near future, here in the United States. Although efforts to get data about gun violence and the United States gun industry have long been stifled by lobbying efforts, there is a little bit of money, about $50 million, earmarked by the House Appropriations Committee for this purpose in the most recently proposed budget. Now, we will see if that budget gets passed and if those earmarks survive the culling and revising that often happens alongside budget proposals. But if it does, we could, in a few years, know a whole lot more than we currently do about this topic, which is essentially nothing, at least as far as the government is concerned. In the meantime, all we can really do is try to avoid treating the subject of guns and gun violence as a political tug of war, useful only to get one over on someone from across the political aisle. Instead, we can view it as a problem worth solving, with many potential solutions, all of them requiring the input and participation of multiple political and economic stakeholders, none of whom are likely to even come to the table for that discussion if they are antagonized, demonized, or dismissed before the conversation has even begun. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World by Adam Tozzi, T-O-O-Z-E. This is a fairly dense book, and it takes what might otherwise be a very boring topic and makes it fairly accessible, but I will note that if you don't know anything at all about the economy, this is probably not the best place to start. Maybe read an introductory guide to investing and to home loans and things like that first, but if you do know a little tiny bit even, this will make a whole lot of sense. And it's worth reading and doing some of that initial research if you want to read it, because it does a great job of establishing the broader context of the 2008 financial crash. It shows how international markets have become very entwined in the modern world, and it shows how what happened back in 2008 is still, in a very real, very tangible way, affecting the world today in terms of our culture, our economy, our politics and international relations. Essentially, everything ties back in some way to that particular crisis, and that crisis ties back, in turn, to many of the other crises that have occurred over the course of economic history. So if that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Crashed by Adam Tuzzi. You can find out more about me and my work at cullen.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes and a transcript for this episode and every episode at 
letsknowthings.com. You can find out where I will be speaking next on the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com, and you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.